Welcome to Meet the Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. You're about to hear practicing oncologists present real breast cancer cases from their practices to our faculty of Drs. Mark Pegram and Hope Rugo and Drs. Hyman Muss and Sandra Swain. To begin, Dr. Sushil Bardwaj presents a provocative case to Drs. Pegram and Rugo of a 65-year-old retired school teacher with a 1.2-sonometer ERPR HER2-positive sentinel node-negative tumor. The patient has an intermediate score of 22 on the Oncotype DX assay. The challenge of this case related to cardiovascular issues, as noted by Dr. Bardwaj. She had a past medical history of having been treated for hypertension. She is moderately obese and has had bilateral knee replacements. Had also been told that she had some cardiac problems, a cardiac valvular problem and a left bundle branch block. And as best as I could tell, had no history of congestive failure. I got in touch with the cardiologist. And what I was able to gather was that she had been seen with, quote-unquote, an enlarged heart referred by the internist about three, four years prior to her coming in to see me. And she had a history of having had a viral myocarditis. And at the time, had had a cardiac cath and had normal coronary arteries and had an ejection fraction on an echo of about 55%. I did a mugger scan, and her left ventricular ejection fraction was 50%. And there was some hypokinesis. And when I put it all together, I was kind of reluctant to give her an anthracycline. And when we reviewed all of the data relating to the adjuvant chemotherapy of her node-negative stage 1 breast cancer, that was 1.2 centimeters. So we talked at length. We talked about the data from adjuvant online, and then we talked about the data that was reported at ASCO about a year and a half ago relating to the use of Herceptin in the adjuvant setting. And my bias was that given where we were, I would not start on the Herceptin certainly with the chemotherapy, but I'd wait for the data to mature. So she got CMF. I started actually to do it the way they did it in the clinical trial, which is my preferred way of using it with the oral CMF two on, two off. And she had a hard time with the oral cytoxin with nausea, and I didn't think she was being compliant with it. So then I switched to the Bonadonna every Q3 week regimen, which was easier to use. She's on Arimidex, and she's starting adjuvant radiation therapy. How long has she been on the Arimidex? I think she's been on it about three weeks. How's she doing? As best as I can tell, fine. Mark, what are your thoughts? Not surprised by the Oncotype result. You know, Paik has done a subset analysis of the NSIPP data set looking specifically at the FISH-positive group. And interestingly, in that analysis... None of the HER2-amplified patients in the NSIBP data set had a low-risk recurrence score. So if you have somebody who's HER2-amplified and you're hoping to get a low-risk recurrence score, I don't think you're going to find it. Hope. But I think that one of the important things to keep in mind is the ratio of gene amplification to centromere 17. And we call HER2-positive tumors, which are very borderline in terms of HER2-positivity, perhaps in biologic, I think, phenotype. And so that if you have, for example, a ratio that's in the low twos, that may be a low score. If you have very strong expression of ERPR and the tumor, I mean, we've all seen some grade one tumors that are HER2 positive. Now, my experience has been that if you have a grade one tumor, but they're strong amplification, that that still will fall into the intermediate or high-risk group. It probably has to do more with the low-level amplification. Just out of curiosity, I don't know if either of you ever seen a second opinion or how you'd react if you saw a second opinion of someone who got an ocotype who was HER2 positive, let's say two and a half, you know, one fish, that had a low 
recurrence score. Would you pay attention to the recurrence score in terms of whether to use chemo? I think you have to use the recurrence score with all of the other factors that you're looking at. So it would depend on the grade, the age of the patient, the size of the tumor, et cetera. And that, you know, in HER2-positive disease, I'm not sure that we have enough information to really use the Oncotype DX score to drive treatment. And so really based on the fact that most of those tumors are intermediate or high risk, I don't generally send the test in patients who are HER2-positive. Exactly. So basically, I agree with Hope that in these cases, I often will not get an oncotype. The oncotype algorithm is dominated by, in their weighting factor with their mathematical computations, dominated by HER2, estrogen receptor, and markers of proliferation. So if you've got those already in your path report and they're leaning one way or the other, then you may not need to get the test. The bottom line is that with regard to cardiac safety, there is really no data on the use of Herceptin in patients with pre-existing heart disease, except to say that it's of you know, major concern and it's anticipated that anybody with pre-existing heart disease might have a worsening of that condition when you block HER2. Ken Chen has shown in a very nice cardiac-specific, tissue-specific knockout mouse model that perturbation of HER2 expression in mouse myocardium leads to a defect in cardiac myocyte stress response. And so HER2 signaling is important in heart disease probably, and if you block it, you may pay the consequences. So I would also have reluctance to recommend adjuvant Herceptin to a patient like this. She's 65 already. She has pre-existing medical conditions, which may limit her lifespan in the future. She's got a small tumor. It is expressing steroid hormone receptors, so you do have other treatment options. She's already survived her chemotherapy. So I think that I could agree with your decision that I would be very, very concerned about using Herceptin. That said, we know that the hazard ratio of adjuvant Herceptin from the European adjuvant trial is around 0.5. So, I mean, it does reduce risk of recurrence by 50%. If you think her risk of recurrence and death exceeds her probability of death from her other pre-existing conditions, then it would be a consideration. But in a 65-year-old with heart disease and a depressed EF already, I think it would be reasonable to say that she's probably got an otherwise you know, reasonable prognosis from her breast cancer and may indeed be able to have a good outcome without Herceptin in this case. What about choice of chemotherapy? And what are your thoughts about some of the available non-anthracycline regimens? This lady was given CMF. We saw the report from Steve Jones from U.S. Oncology on docetaxel cyclophosphamide, the TC regimen. The CALGB is looking at taxol, dose-dense taxol in node-negative patients as part of a trial. Absolutely. We'll talk this afternoon that the CLGB is also looking at capecitabine in the okay. adjuvant setting. So there are a bunch of things being studied. What are your thoughts about those, and what do you think you might have recommended to this woman? I think it's very useful that we as practicing clinicians have a number of options, especially in patients with pre-existing heart disease, to consider non-anthracycline regimens. So all these reports that you mentioned I find very valuable, and in particular, since Steve Jones's original presentation of the TC versus AC data, I have used the TC regimen on many occasions to avoid anthracycline toxicity. Moreover, I find that you know, with just four cycles, even in elderly patients and patients with other medical conditions, usually you can get them through four cycles of an adjuvant regimen without too much stress. So I think these are a wonderful addition to the armamentarium and are an acceptable alternative to anthracyclines, and in some cases are superior to anthracyclines. Have you used TC trastuzumab? I know U.S. oncology is thinking of studying it. Have you done it? I have done it off protocol. I mean, basically what you're doing is you're following the HERA study design, which is sequential chemo followed by Herceptin, and it works. I mean, it's definitely efficacious, even in the lymph node negative subset. 
Now, in the subset analysis from Hera, the only thing that you can't really hang your hat on is these non-anthracycline regimens. They did not have enough patients on non-anthracycline regimens to say with statistical certainty in the lymph node negative subset in particular that that's going to be a benefit. But clearly, with anthracycline-based regimens followed by trastuzumab, that subset was statistically significant. Again, the taxane subset was small in the HERA trial, and so the confidence limits overlap 1.0 in the forest plot, and you can't say with confidence that that approach would work. But I have no reason to doubt that it wouldn't. I have no reason to doubt that CMF followed by Herceptin would also be you know, efficacious. I mean, the bottom line is that the hazard ratio from the Herceptin exceeds the hazard ratio from adjuvant chemotherapy. Hope I'd like your thoughts on this case and also how you would respond if she had six positive nodes. Well, actually, we have a patient right now that we're struggling along with who presented with a locally very advanced disease, and in her late 50s has congestive heart failure. I mean, her ejection fraction is in the 40s, multiple other medical problems, diabetes. I mean, it's a really dismal situation, and ERPR negative, HER2 positive. So, you know, we were really struggling about what chemotherapy regimen to give her, and I have been impressed by the data looking retrospectively when we add a taxane to anthracyclines that there's significant additional benefit in the HER2 positive subgroup regardless of ER. And that data was presented at ASCO by Dan Hayes from our CLGB trial. And then there's additional data combining different trials, looking at the addition of a taxane, the dose-dense study, although they didn't have a lot of HER2-positive patients to look at there. So for that reason, I've tended to steer towards using a taxane-only regimen when I have a patient who can't get anthracyclines but has HER2-positive early-stage disease. And then the other combination regimen so that hope, interests... So hope, I'm sorry, but yeah. even node-negative disease, you would do Even node-negative disease. And actually, there's a lot of interest in taxane-only regimens. As Neil was mentioning, the CLGB has an ongoing trial. And also, Dana-Farber is trying to start a multi-center trial looking at these lower-risk HER2-positive patients and using a taxane, paclitaxel, trastuzumab approach with no anthracycline. Now, you know, there is this data from the BCIRG trial suggesting that we shouldn't be abandoning anthracyclines overall because we don't really understand the interaction between other amplified genes, such as topoisomerase too. But in a patient who can't receive anthracyclines, I would tend to steer, you know, CMF is not non-toxic, of course, as you found, but I don't think that's a bad choice, but I tend to steer towards a taxane-type regimen. And probably the most tolerable approach is to use a weekly taxane regimen, a paclitaxel regimen. And the other thing I've done is to add carboplatin because TCH, at least in the metastatic setting, when the T was paclitaxel, was a very effective regimen. So that's what we chose to do in this woman who had very locally advanced disease was paclitaxel carboplatin. And um, trastuzumab? And no, no, her ejection fraction is 40%. So no, we didn't give her trastuzumab. I mean, you know, if this lady develops symptomatic, painful mets, are you never going to give her Herceptin? Well, this woman really does have, there are several issues that are different, I think, from your patient who I think has pre-existing cardiac damage from myocarditis that hasn't improved. This woman, of course, has ongoing reasons to have cardiac issues. And, you know, her mortality risk from the other underlying disease is quite high. And so that giving her trastuzumab and reducing her ejection fraction now, I think, is 
too high a risk. If she had, she's already on multiple cardiac medications, and our experience has been if you have really a very low EF on multiple cardiac medications, adding trastuzumab can hasten mortality. So that has that uh, actually been done? Do you have patients like that? We have had patients who developed trastuzumab cardiac toxicity, and if their ejection fractions remained low on cardiac medications, they haven't tolerated reinstitution. Thankfully, that's a small number of patients because. Generally, I think our experience has been not using trastuzumab in patients who have really serious pre-existing myocardial dysfunction. So in this patient, you know, the patient who has locally advanced disease, I think it's important to remember that because you mentioned, you know, what if this patient had six positive nodes? One is that hormone therapy may be effective in the early stage setting, even though the patient has HER2 positive disease. So that's important to remember this patient had ER positive disease. And the other thing is that chemotherapy is actually quite effective in HER2-positive disease. And if you look at CLGB9344, Dan Hayes' retrospective evaluation, which took many years of work, the patients who had HER2-positive disease, regardless of ER status, didn't do that badly, actually. And the addition of paclitaxel had a big impact on outcomes. So we will cure a subset of patients, even who have positive nodes, who have HER2-positive disease, even without trastuzumab. Obviously, because there is you know, massive improvement in outcome with trastuzumab, if someone can tolerate it, it's the treatment. The other thing I think to consider is the FIN-HER trial, where nine weeks of trastuzumab had a significant impact. So if you had a patient who had borderline ejection fraction, you wanted to use a very short course, you could potentially give the trastuzumab with the taxane regimen for a short course and then stop where your risks of getting cardiac damage will be minimized. That study used FEC, though. Yes, it did, I know, but you figure that you're kind of leading on. It's like the idea that the HERA trial, where almost all the patients received an anthracycline-based regimen, that you're taking a leap of faith to think that TC followed by trastuzumab will give you similar results. Now, we think taxanes are very active in HER2-positive disease, so it's probably a reasonable assumption. It's the same idea that you know you could give a short course of trastuzumab even to a patient who didn't get an anthracycline and still have better outcome than if you didn't use trastuzumab. And then I think the issue of The patient who has a 1.2 centimeter ER positive tumor is to remember that that patient, although the relative risk of recurrence is higher in HER2 positive patients, that she still has overall a pretty good prognosis. So that using a chemotherapy followed by an aromatase inhibitor is a very reasonable treatment course for that patient. Alan? Just in the interest of stimulating discussion, I'm hearing that the woman is 65 and has pre-existing heart disease, and she's overweight. So if I'm thinking about the breast cancer, that's one issue. But if I'm thinking about this woman's global health and what is most likely to get her into trouble in the next 10 years, knowing that the leading cause of death and disability in women is not cancer, but is cardiovascular disease, I would wonder if just to focus purely on her breast cancer is really focusing on the right issue here. And I would wonder if simply an aromatase inhibitor would be the right treatment for this woman and then tell her she needs to focus on her cardiovascular risk factors if she wants to have the best quality of life and the longest life. Well, remember that some of her cardiac disease is not like that patient that I mentioned earlier has diabetes and you know several myocardial infarctions and bad EF on five drugs. This patient actually had a viral myocarditis, and so the lower EF, if she controls her hypertension and loses a little weight, she might actually do okay in the long run. I mean, I think patients do survive it, and obviously she needs cardiac follow-up, but I think some of those patients now with appropriate care will live a long period of time. 
However, your point is extremely well taken. I think that we really need to tell our patients about the impact of other health issues on their survival. I mean, those patients who continue to smoke are overweight, who don't exercise, because it's clear that, or drink a lot of alcohol, all of those lifestyle factors impact survival, particularly in women who've had a history of breast cancer. So I think it's very, very important. Hey, Mark, I've got an even better idea. Let's tell her to cut back on her fat, and she'll actually reduce her relapse rate. Would you tell her that? Sure, I'm, and I think weight. I probably would. Well, I say in all fairness, <laughs> yeah. this lady, no, has, this lady has lost about 30 pounds before she met me. Wow, and, that's great. Um, and, and she does... And she after has, she met you? And after she met me, she stayed the same. But also, she has had bilateral knee replacements, and that's a significant problem for her in terms so of stayin ambulation. So staying the same is good for CMF, but seriously, Mark, yeah. I'm curious, what do you think about the WIND study, Rowan Chablowski study, looking at dietary fat and sure. the effect on relapse rate? Sure. I mean, it's very plausible. I mean, it's a randomized I, prospective study. Correct. I mean, yeah. is there a flaw there, Hope? Is there a flaw? What's the... Well, the interesting thing in that trial, I think, which requires additional follow-up, which of course is ongoing, is that, first of all, I think it's fabulous that you could actually have modifiable risk factors that would change outcomes, such as fat intake and exercise, moderate exercise. But the interesting thing in that study is the women who had the lower fat intake didn't reach the goal of the study but still had a lower fat intake than most Americans. The thing that's curious is they all lost weight. And so it may be that the weight loss is a more critical factor than the low fat, and we can't tell. The other thing that's a little odd in that study, which was quite unexpected, is that the impact was greater in ER negative disease and ER positive disease. And I think, again, we need longer term. They did not expect that. That's not expected by the preclinical models so, and the epidemiologic studies. So we need a little bit longer follow-up to understand that impact. Nonetheless, I think there's enough data to tell patients that a lower fat diet, which of course will help their cardiovascular <laughs> status, which is the bigger mortality risk, and a weight loss, you know, at least reaching a reasonable weight and exercise are really important for health. Mark, is there an explanation looking at insulin or insulin growth factors that might make sense for ER negative tumors? It's been postulated that the IGF receptor axis may be important in the pathogenesis of breast cancer, and I think that hypothesis we put to the direct test once we get anti-IGF receptor antibodies into the clinic, for example, to see what kind of therapeutic potential they might have for the disease. So sure, it's a plausible hypothesis and there may be something there, and there's some laboratory data that suggests that this axis is important. Sushil? This lady is HER2 new positive, and she's ER positive. So does that lead you to pick an AI over tamoxifen? Do you buy that data? Or? There's probably something special about the ER positive, PR negative subset. There probably is something unique about the biology of that particular right. subclass of breast cancers. And so, you know, the problem is if you look across the different aromatase inhibitor trials, you don't see that consistently. You see it just in the attack trial, whereas the other trial, Big 198, Big 198 that actually had central lab testing for steroid hormone receptors, you don't see that effect. So it is controversial, and I don't really know what to make of all the data but in Mark, composite, and I don't I'm, use that as a deciding factor in my own practice to select an AI or not. But not just the PR status, but also the fact her that too. she's HER2 positive, do you think that confers some relative tamoxifen resistance vis-a-vis -vis the AI? It absolutely does confer relative tamoxifen resistance, and that's been shown in retrospective data sets, but it also confers a degree of resistance to all endocrine therapies, including the aromatase inhibitors. That point was emphasized in the recent report from ESMO of the first-line Arimidex plus or minus receptin study, where the median time to progression on the Arimidex arm was something like three, mo three months. Yeah, and so that 
you know, everyone says they were surprised by that data. Well, guess what? We were not surprised by that data at UCLA because we've been saying that for years. That Could regardless, you track back onto that a little bit in terms of how many patients and what they looked at? It was only 101 patients per arm, so it's a small study. And it was a randomized phase two, I guess, trial of Arimidex with or without Herceptin. And the bottom line is the Herceptin arm did have a superior time to progression, higher response rate, et cetera. But as Hope mentioned, because the control arm did so poorly, though it doubled the time to progression, that went from you know, three months to six months, so it wasn't a home run by any stretch, but it was statistically significant. And it supports scientific rationale behind targeting both receptors and try to control crosstalk pathways between receptor tyrosine kinase signaling and steroid hormone receptors. Hope, you know, it's interesting. Before the adjuvant trastuzumab data came out, people usually didn't start women on hormones and trastuzumab in the first-line metastatic setting together. They usually did the hormones for a while and then brought the Herceptin in. Now, maybe because people are getting used to using hormones and trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting, you're seeing more people using the combination. You have the data coming out about the crosstalk, et cetera. Are you starting people up front as first-line therapy with hormones and trastuzumab? Yes, and I had done that for quite some time. I mean, I had always been impressed by the effectiveness of trastuzumab and also the preclinical data that suggested that you could potentially reverse resistance. And there's actually some data from Kent Osborne and Jenny Chang that suggests that, and you know, we haven't been able to prove this in the clinical setting, but that you might be able to see ER become positive when you treat patients with HER2 positive disease with trastuzumab, and they're looking at that with lopatinib as well. In other words, that you can unmask ER positivity and create sensitivity to hormone therapy. So we had, in fact, used that combination. The TANDEM trial is really fascinating. It is a small study. But, you know, you give an astrozole to one group, 2.4-month time to progression and a response rate in the 6% range. And the other group, I think the impressive thing is, one, the response rate went up to over 20%, but the time to progression was less than five months. So you still have a very poor risk group, and I think it suggests in the metastatic setting that for patients who certainly have visceral disease that or more rapid progression, that we would use chemotherapy and trastuzumab first and use hormones plus trastuzumab for maintenance, which I think most of us do. I think, you know, the patients with soft tissue-only disease, that kind of setting bone disease, which is a small percentage, using that combination is reasonable, but it steers us away from using hormone therapy without trastuzumab in the metastatic setting. I want to go on to Dr. Bobro's case. Okay. 